Amen. Good morning, guys. It is fantastic to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, as you can tell, we're we're going through the book of Genesis together as a church family, uh, and it's been such a delight, and uh, it's been good. Um, as we get going this morning, I want to give you a pastor's kids. They come. They they don't have to go to both services today. It's good. It's good for them. Uh, helps our relationship at home. So anyway, this is going to be a wild ride. Let's go. Um, um, so I want to give you a picture before we get going today um, that, that came from uh, some writing that Corey Ten Boom uh, did. Corey Ten Boom uh, was a Dutch Holocaust survivor. Uh, she and her family were Christians. And uh, as Christians, they, they chose to hide Jews in their house to, to really save them from entering into uh, the, the, the Holocaust camps, the, the concentration camps. And... Um, and, and through that process, they were eventually, they, they led many people to Jesus, but through that process, they were eventually arrested in 1944. Um, and, and they're in prison, they were, she was in prison for nine years, and uh, the, um, the story goes like this, she was released on a clerical error, we know that to be the Holy Spirit. Um, she was released from jail and then began to tell the story of what God had done through she and her family all around the world. And while she was on a trip uh, in, in the United States, uh, she was traveling by train in between cities as she was sharing the story of what she had done because she had journaled through this entire time as she'd seen God move through her family and in her own life. She, she saw on a train ticket something that stuck with her that would stick with the rest of her ministry uh, that I want to, to kind of uh, set before you today. You know, on the bottom of the, the train ticket, on, on any ticket really, before we had these little devices that have our tickets on them, which is so crazy, right? They're the actual paper tickets, all right? You can remember those. Uh, and on one side of the ticket, uh, you would keep, it would show, show you where your seat is. On the, other, on the other side of the ticket, you would give to the train conductor or whoever's taking this, or the, the ticket attendant. And, uh, but on that side of the ticket, it would say, not good if detached. Not good if detached. And... And for her, that became, that became kind of an anthem for her life. That whenever she got into a situation where she felt detached from the Holy Spirit's leading her life, she was not in a good place. Today, as we look at the story of Jacob, there's a lot of texts that I, we could look at today. I'm really going to zero in and focus on the life of Jacob today and the redemption of Jacob and the restoration and the revival of Jacob uh, I want you to think about the same uh, phrase, that you are not good if detached from the Spirit of God. So uh, th this mantra needs to become really our mantra. I want to I start with a passage, not from Genesis, but from John chapter 10, 10, uh, as the sermon before the sermon. Uh, and uh, that was a joke. Anyway, uh, John chapter 10, verse 10, if you have a Bible, open it up. I think it is one of the most significant verses in all of the scriptures. Because it shows us, uh, in a real succinct way, the purpose of the enemy, the devil himself, and the purpose of God. Uh, and in one verse, we get both of those answers. Um, the scripture says this, the thief, that's the devil, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That is his purpose, that is his mission. I, Jesus says, have, have come that they, meaning the people of God, the children of God, the disciples of Jesus, may have life, but not just life, have it abundantly. 
So I want to make a statement to you today, a statement that I'm willing to bet most of us do not viscerally believe this morning. And that's this, that your Father in heaven has designed you in his image to experience abundant life through his abundant love this morning. Excessive, overflowing, gaudy love this morning. Over the top love. When I say that to you this morning, most of us in this room, that feels like a distant, far cry from where we are and where we've walked in. And my prayer for you this morning is that it would be more of your reality before you leave this church today. Amen? That's what we're going after today. That's what we're going to see in the life of Jacob, see what changes. So, so what's coming up against us as followers of Jesus? What is it? Well, we have this enemy. This enemy has one purpose. It's to detach you from that abundant love. To, to put a wedge in between you and that connective, tethered life of abiding in Jesus Christ. He, he, he's come to, to steal from us, to kill every part of life in you, and to steal everything that makes your life worth living today. But, but the question is, how does he do that? I mean, he doesn't just walk through the front door of your heart and steal it all, take it all away. No, that's not how he does it. He comes in through the back door of your heart, doesn't he? Well, I think we can learn a lot about the, the enemy's schemes, and the scriptures call us not to be ignorant of his schemes. So this is an attempt for us not to be ignorant of his designs and his schemes, as the, as the book of Corinthians tells us about. I think we can learn a lot about his strategy by looking back at the garden in the first temptation. Because he's not all that creative. He's, I mean, he's crafty. Uh, but it's not like he can speak things into existence like our God can. He's not that creative, right? So let's look back at what we know to be his scheme from the garden. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, it's a f familiar scene to people that have been in, in the church and really all of mankind. I'd be surprised if this wasn't a familiar scene to someone. Genesis chapter 3, here's what God's done in Genesis chapter 2. He's created this amazing garden for his image bearers, Adam and Eve. And he said, basically what he said to the garden is a capital Y-E-S. Yes is what God has said. Yes, enjoy it all, enjoy one another, enjoy me, with a footnote of a no at the bottom. With a little bitty footnote that says this. Oh, by the way, don't eat of that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? Don't eat of that one. That's the only one. Everything else, yes, yes, yes. The enemy then comes and finds his angle into the hearts of Adam and Eve. And here's where we pick up in Genesis 3, 5. He, he says this. Notice what he ascribes as motive to God, as, he knew, as if he knew the mind of the Lord. He says this to Adam and Eve. For God knows, here's why he said that. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like, like God, knowing good and evil. So how does the enemy, what is at least one way the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy my life and your life? Well, well let's just assume, assume that, he, that, that, that the enemy has the same mentality about life that I do. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? I mean, every restaurant I go to, it's like plain cheesecake. Yes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Well, I think he does the same thing with us. He does the same thing with Jacob, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. What's his approach then? Let's make them cynical about God. Let's make them doubt the goodness of God. Let's make them have assumptions about God's motives. If we can just stab the knife in, they'll twist it themselves. 
This is the thing that we see God doing in the garden. This is the thing that we see God doing, the enemy doing rather, um, in the life of Jacob. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say a series of statements to you right now. And we're going to do kind of a cynic test, okay? We could come up with different statements. These are the ones I just came up with this morning, kind of last second. But I want to know what your knee-jerk reaction is. I'm going I'm to share with you something that Jesus could absolutely do on the spot. He could do it. It could be an implication of the good news of the gospel covering the face of the earth. And I want to know kind of what your knee-jerk reaction is on this. So I'm going to, so, so let's be honest here, all right? We're, we're in church after all. Starting tomorrow, because of the gospel, Christians will no longer bicker, gossip, and slander one another. You'll never be hurt by another Christian. Starting tomorrow, because of the gospel, nations will no longer war against one another. They'll live in perfect harmony and peace with one another. Starting tomorrow, because of the gospel, children in our world, the most vulnerable, will no longer be hungry, mistreated, and homeless. Starting tomorrow, because of the gospel, men and women will be treated with equal dignity and respect all around our world in every way imaginable. Starting tomorrow, the Bengals will celebrate their first Super Bowl win in 33 years. No, you get where I'm going with this, though. Like, is it not true that that your first thought, your knee-jerk reaction after that statement was kind of like, yeah, but, isn't that that accurate? That's because we are all preconditioned to be cynical, even the most joyful of us in the room. We are preconditioned for it. Because of our fallen condition, cynicism lurks within each of us because we've been more conditioned by our fallen condition in this world than the hope of the resurrection in Christ that he's promised us. So where does this cynical approach come from? It comes from the enemy. We have, t- we have taken his bait, hook, line, and sinker. The enemy wants you, here's, how he, here's one of the ways at least that he's come to steal, to kill, and destroy your salvation. The enemy wants you to assume that God is never actively loving or caring for you while you are in this world. But the very nature of God, the nature of agape love, as my friend Dr. Paul says, is that you were in fact made because God's love had to go somewhere, all right? Because agape love is not pointed inward, it is pointed outward. You were made, the whole purpose you were made was so that you could be a vessel a container of God's love. That's the whole reason you were made. Yet our enemy has convinced us to believe that that'll never happen, that that'll never be true, that that will never be a reality for us. If you're anything like me, you're afraid to declare that you desire this experience of abundant life in this world that Jesus promises us. And why? Because we are so conditioned by this world to expect the worst. That we relegate the abundant life that Jesus Christ has promised us in the Gospel of John to a distant theological concept instead of an actualized visceral reality that you and I can experience in this world. This is a huge problem, right? This is a massive problem. 
such a massive problem that God has sent Jesus and the Holy Spirit to reapply the truths of the gospel to shake us out of this, all right? So here's our big idea for today. The key to abundant living is depending on the Spirit to resurrect what sin keeps crucifying in us. So what, what are we to do when we cannot experience this revived life? What we see in, in our passage today is that Jacob uh, has lived a lonely, cynical life for quite some time. It has plagued him. He's been spiritually depressed for a long, long time. And the scripture says that the spirit of their father, that like his first knee-jerk reaction was he didn't believe that Joseph was still alive. He's like, yeah, whatever, right? Best news in the world? Nah, I don't believe it. I wish I could say that I'm not exactly the same way. You're the same way too. Your first knee-jerk reaction to something amazing is like, yeah, whatever. There's got to be strings attached. But then God did something in Jacob. The scripture says that the spirit of their father, Jacob, was revived. You know what revived means? It's two parts, right? Prefix re, meaning again, vived life. He's come to life again. He's been reanimated. I love what C.E. Autry says about revival. He says this. He says, revival is a reanimating of those who already express life. Anybody need to be reanimated this morning? If your hand's not up, you're lying. It's okay. The Lord can deal with that too. So the, the, the question that we really want to answer today is how do we stay revived, right? How, how, how do we keep from going off into this desert of unbelief and cynicism? How do we stay revived? So let's pick up with Jacob now. This really is a sermon about Jacob's life. Um, Jacob is, let me just remind you of who Jacob is if, if, if you haven't been tracking with this. Jacob is one of Isaac's twin boys, right? He has a twin brother named Esau. And they are both Abraham's grandsons as well. At this point, he is the patriarch of the family. Everyone else has passed away. Jacob uh, is still alive. And, you know, last week Brandon did this amazing job of teaching us about how the sovereignty of God is so crucial to understand if we ever want to live a forgiving life, right? He did an amazing job teaching us that this week. But there's still this one character that hasn't got in on that forgiveness, that hasn't got in on that, that, uh, that family being put back together. And it's dad, right? It is, it is Jacob himself. And because of this promise, um, because of this promise that God has given uh, to Jacob, which, which was this from Genesis 15, 13, Jacob, Jacob's story, we, we need some clarity. We need some closure in Jacob's story. Genesis 15 says this, the Lord said to Abraham, so this is, this is when God called Abraham originally. The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God promises Abraham this uh, when he calls him. Hey, by the way, you're not going to go straight to the promised land and just, you know, live there forever. You're going to be enslaved, and it might not seem like slavery at first, but you're going to be enslaved in Egypt, and it's all part of my plan. I drew it up from the beginning of time that you are going to go to Egypt, where our only problem is, is one of the patriarchs is not yet in Egypt. And he's not yet in Egypt because his heart's hard and God has to do work in his own life. And this is where we see this happening today. So it, what we see in this passage in Genesis 45, starting in 16, is that Pharaoh gets excited because Joseph's excited about his family being reunited. And Pharaoh does what any sugar daddy would do. He's like, hey, take whatever you need, right? Take it all. Take, take the chariots, you know, goats and goats on days and all of the food you could possibly take. And, 
And, and, and I think Joseph knows that his father's going to need some convincing, right? And so he takes all of these things the brothers do. They, they take it up to Canaan. And, uh, and, and that's kind of where we, we pick up with the story of Jacob. Now, as we, as we get into this, what, what we'll see is that there are about 70 to 75 people. There's a whole list of them if you want to read in Genesis 46. There's about 70 to 75 people um, that make up the nation of Israel. So basically, that's like you guys over there. You guys are God's chosen people over there, okay? The rest of you, I don't know. But you guys are chosen. That's some perspective, right? The nation of Israel, small. Some 430-ish years later, the nation of Israel will be over 2 million people when they leave Egypt. God does a tremendous work to multiply the nation of Israel. And Egypt serves as an incubator, really, for the nation of Israel. And um, so the two kind of points of where we're going today is this. The two things I want to look at in the life of Jacob is really how God changes Jacob, like what his condition is when God meets him, and then how God changes him to prepare him for what the season ahead is the nation. And really two kind of themes that I see is this. The first one is this, is there is a detachment there, uh, that, that, that Jacob has this cynical heart that seeks detachment instead of dependence in the Lord. And, and what we see is that we really actually do the same thing. The second thing we see is this theme of connection, that the spirit is always reattaching, or you could say resurrecting, what sin has detached or crucified in our lives. Like that is what he is all about, is bringing us back into the fold, reconnecting us to the vine. So let's look at this um, detachment, uh, sanctification theory here, if we could say that. Um, Jacob is on the way, you know, he, he's, he's, he's kind of in process here. The boys have just showed up. Uh, uh, in the land of Canaan to tell their dad the best news imaginable. I mean, like, better than, like, hitting the lottery. Those people's lives are all messed anyway, but you get what I'm saying. Like, really, really, really good news on this earth. The best news imaginable on this earth. Jacob is about to hear. And let's hear how he responds. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Dad. Joseph is still alive. And not only is Joseph still alive, he's ruler over all of Egypt. He is the prime minister of the most influential nation on the face of the earth. (laughs) And his heart became numb. He didn't believe him. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, he's 130, so it's a real prospect that he might not make it, okay? I mean, he's old. And he's lived a pretty rough life, the whole wrestling with God thing. He's walking with the limp. He's, I mean, he's, lim- he's limping, all right? He's, he needs to be carried in there. The thing that struck me about this is the thing that you and I probably almost looked over because it's so familiar to our human experience. His heart became numb or stunned or in shock, for he did not believe them. His knee-jerk reaction to the best news on the face of the planet was, eh, I don't believe it. And I wish I could tell you that that posture is not familiar to me. Friends, I am so tired of my cynical heart. 
you know, I'm so tired of hearing really good things that God is actively working on my behalf, on behalf of my family, on behalf of my friends, on behalf of the global church. And I just don't believe it. I'm just like Jacob. Can you relate to that? I mean, you hear really good things, you're like, yeah, it must be good for them. I mean, I, I'm to the point that, I, that, that sometimes I would, I would rather relegate some amazing thing that I hear happen to chance than to the Lord Jesus Christ. How distorted is that, right? How dark is that, that we wouldn't give glory to God when we hear about something that God has done because our hearts are so numb. The best English word to describe where Jacob is in life is this. Jacob is cynical. A cynic, according to the, 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 the Webster's internets or whatever, I got this online, is a person who believes that only selfishness motivates human actions and who minimizes selfless acts. It sounds right. It sounds right in the human experience as well. <clears throat> the problem is, is that Jesus Christ is the portrait of selflessness. That makes cynicism the exact opposite of the character of Jesus. And yet it is, the, it, is, it is the most readily available response that I have to good news in this world. And I'm guessing you too. And, you know, I think we've all been conditioned by worst case scenario uh, sanctification, right? I mean, we, so what we do is in life, we've been hurt because we've, we've, we've hoped and we've been let down. And so we set the bar so low that it's hard to be disappointed, right? That's what we do in life. And, and we kind of become numb, just like Jacob was. When cynicism in our heart goes unchecked, here's what, here's what the default position of the human heart becomes. We constantly question the active goodness of God on our behalf. We say, if God's working, he's not working good things. And the problem is, he's always working good things to those that he loves, is what the scriptures tell us. And so we've got, we're at odds with God in this. And we see that cynicism is actually a sin against God before it's a sin against another brother or a sister. According to our passage from John chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 3, the devil is prowling to steal life from you. And I think he's primary, one of the primary ways he wants to do that is to make you cynical in your heart. In this, as you live in this, this world. Because the primary place of the battle is the dominion of the human heart. Here's where uh, Octavius Winslow says about this. What a great name, by the way. Somebody named their next kid Octavius. It'll be amazing. If there's one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually minded believer, so in other words, what I'm about to say should convict you and probably humble you a little bit here, is that after all that God has done for him, all, you know, all the rich displays of his grace, that there should still exist in the heart a principle, which is this. The tendency to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure or detachment from God. What's the hymn say? We are prone to wonder. And I love the next line. Lord, I feel it, right? We are so prone to wonder and leave a God we love because we are conditioned more by our experience in this world than by the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. And here's the problem with a cynical heart as a Christian. And this is, Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, has like several chapters dedicated to this. So this is kind of me 
you know, robbing and duplicating some of that. So don't, don't think I'm awesome. Think Paul Miller's awesome. Really think Jesus is awesome. But um, it, it, he says this about cynicism. He says it's not that we don't have enough faith. It's not just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and uh, mustering up enough faith and you'll just be able to push through the cynicism. He says, no, 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 that's not the issue. What the issue is, is that we've got too much of the wrong kind of faith. Um, you know, he, he talks about this idea that, that we're either na- uh, na- naively optimistic, so just kind of blissful, you know, kind of n- not realistic about things, or we're foolishly confident. We're overconfident in our own ability to make things happen. The, the problem with both of those is both of those see ourselves experiencing life and its circumstances without Jesus being with us and living in us. That's what makes us cynical, is that we try to live life detached from Jesus. But rather, how does Jesus tell us to think about our journey in this life as he lives in us? Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 says this. It says, behold, this is when he sends the apostles out, sends the disciples out. He says, I'm sending you out, but I'm doing it in a specific kind of way into this world. So think about this as you leave this church today, and we do the benediction, the same one I always do, which I love. Think about this. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents. So exercise wisdom and innocent as doves. Like That's the posture of how you're to engage in this world. Friends, when we become the cynic, we become the wolf. Do you see that? We become the wolf. And who is the wolf? The enemy, right? We, we, we mirror the enemy more than we do the Savior when we become the wolf. The Holy Spirit is the only one who has both the authority and the power to shape your heart. Why must we keep shutting down our hearts in cynicism as we experience tough spots in this life? The wolf is cynical. The sheep is realistically hopeful. Have you ever seen a sheep before? And guys, there's no way of getting away from him being the good shepherd and us being sheep, right? We, we, can't, we can't like outsmart God's design for us to live as sheep, right? I know we think we're Americans and we've got technology. You can't, you can't outsheep him, all right? You gotta, it's just going to happen. It's, it's how you're going to thrive is to live as sheep. The wolf is cynical. The sheep is realistically hopeful, ready to receive the best news at any given moment and credit the goodness of God with it. That's God's design for us. In what ways has your heart become cynical this morning? In what ways were you, can you say, yeah, feels like Joseph to me, or feels like Jacob to me. That's, that's the Jacob in me. Because there's one thing a cynical heart can't do. It's pray. A cynical heart cannot pray. Because a cynical heart is a heart that's bent on living by itself. It's a heart that's bent on independence instead of interdependence. Because prayer is all about a confession and a request for deeper dependence and activity on God's behalf for our good. But when we're cynical, we don't believe that God can do that. So maybe a way to track back and to to, kind of diagnose where the cynicism is in your life is track your prayer life. Track your prayer life. 
How are you praying or are you praying? It's a real question for us as the people of God. Do you say things like I do sometimes where it's like, well, I bet that would have happened even if I didn't pray. God was going to do that anyway. Why would we even do that kind of ridiculous things? I do it all the time, though. I'm so cynical and I'm so tired of living that way. Can we as the people of God be joyfully expectant in the hope of the resurrection in our day-to-day lives? Man, that's my longing for us. So let's, let's keep going here. Connection. So the Spirit's always reattaching what sin has, has detached. And we see this happening in Jacob's life here. Jacob uh, begins to actively pursue the Lord again. And the essence of it is this. Though it seems impossible that God could be restoring his family and what he thought to be his dead son for 30 years, this, the, he's open to the possibility of this. But what we see when God meets him is God kind of diagnoses the root of the cynicism for him. And it's a surprising thing that he diagnoses him with. <clears throat> Jacob is ultimately afraid because he fears God has left him. That's what makes his heart numb. That's what makes his heart stunned. That's what makes his heart so lost that it's not even open to resurrection and life. Our enemy will never be in right relationship to God. He will always be alone. He's cynical, and he wants to make you cynical. This is nothing new in Jacob's story. It's nothing new in our story either. I mean, think about Jacob. When he was on the run for his life, he was terrified at the prospect of seeing his brother Esau that he'd stolen his birthright from. Why? Because he imagined encountering Esau without the Lord standing in between them. That's what a cynic does. It imagines all of life on your own. And so it lowers the bar so far that you're not even open to resurrection. You're not even open to hope. So let's hear how the Lord meets him here. Genesis 46, 1 through 7. So Israel, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. He's open. He's open to what God's got. He's obeying God. He's following God. He's worshiping God. He offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Beersheba is the southernmost point of the promised land just on the edge before you're kind of getting your way into Egypt. And he's worshiping there. He's kind of tiptoeing in, and God meets him right here. Why? Because Jacob's cynical. (laughs) He's obeying, but he's still cynical. God speaks to him. It's the only time that we see God speaking in Genesis 37 through 50 to a person. And he's not speaking to Joseph, the one that we think, man, I bet that guy's got a great relationship with God. He probably talks audibly to God every day, right? He's got it all together. No, he's talking to Jacob, the joker Jacob himself. And here's what he says to him. Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob, here I am. Then he said, I am the God. I am God, the God of your father. First thing he says to him, I know you're afraid. I know you're so afraid what Egypt's going to do to the promise, what Egypt's going to do to your family, what Egypt already has done to your family. And you really still doubt whether Joseph's there or not. I know you're afraid, but don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. And why? And here's what your cynical heart needs to hear. For there I will make you into a great nation because I myself will go down to Egypt with you. Mm. And I will also bring you up again. And not only that, your beloved son, Joseph, he's going to be with you until you die. Jacob, you'll never, ever, ever have to be alone again. 
you'll never, ever, ever have to choose that old cynical way of detached living again. God is always addressing Jacob's fear of being isolated and alone. Friends, he's always addressing our fear of being isolated and alone that surfaces itself in our cynicism. It's really, our cynicism's really about our fear of being alone. I really think it is. And Jesus, it's so interesting, right? Thomas, right? Thomas, John 20 maybe, John 19. Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? Thomas, you know, hears about the resurrection, first thought, no way it's true. <laughs> I'm so like Thomas, right? No way it's true. Jesus encounters Thomas, sends his disciples out into all the world, go make disciples, the great commission. Last statement, I am with you always to the end of the age. You'll never, ever, 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 Christian, be alone again. So you don't have to revert to cynical living anymore. The picture of life in the Lord is actually for us functionally believing that God is alive in us and that you don't have to go find him, that he's closer than you could ever imagine. And that connection is life. That is the essence of everything that your heart is longing for, is connect, being connected, abiding with Jesus. All because before the foundation of the world, he chose to live in dirty, rotten sinners. When we chose detachment in the garden, when we chose cynicism in the garden, he chose connection. That, I just had this image of when we were reading that scripture of God's promise to Jacob when he says, I'm going to go down to Egypt with you and we're going to rise up. Isn't that a picture of the cross and the resurrection? That Jesus will come down to rescue us and we'll go up into eternity with him. We'll be with him forever. That is the promise of life. We don't have to be conditioned by our cynical approach to life that's so disconnected any longer. This is the picture of what Jesus desires to give you. There's, I don't have time to go into this in detail, but in John chapter 4, there's this Samaritan woman that is kind of like Jacob, um, except she's a Gentile like Jacob. And she says, you know, there's no other way for me to experience life. And so the scriptures say that, you know, that she's in Samaria, and Jesus meets her at this well. Jesus meets her getting water at this well in the middle of the day at this well. Um, because for her, she's already predetermined in her cynical heart that this is as good as it gets. And getting water in the middle of the day in the desert means that you're drinking basically boiling water. Last time I checked, when I'm thirsty, I don't like to drink water that's 211 degrees, right, on the edge of boiling, right? No. And so this is as good as it's got. It's a picture of, of, uh, of what a cynical heart kind of looks like, is that your, your, your um, idea of, of life and abundant living is so low, it's really hard to disappoint. And the other thing is, the woman's alone at the well, right? Because that's where cynicism leads you, to loneliness. It's the thing that Jesus addresses. So Jesus comes up, and he says, hey, if you, he asks her for a drink. He, he's building a relationship with her. He says, hey, let me try this hot water you're drinking. Looks pretty good. And, um, and Jesus answered her. Uh, she's like questioning him. He's, 
if you know the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water, like something way different than what you're settling for here. And, uh, and Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, man, they're going to be thirsty again. Isn't that a picture for that, God, man, just that, that, that cynical life? But whoever drinks the water that I will give will never be thirsty again because the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Will be connected, will be full, will be flourishing. Water in the Bible church is a picture of life. Sometimes that water takes away life, like in the flood, right? Other times it gives life. Water is a picture of life. This lady in John 4 is so full of shame in her secret search for life, that this is as good as it gets, hot desert water. Her understanding of her situation is, is like this. This is as good as it gets. It's where many of us in this room have walked today. This is as good as it gets in my marriage. This is a good, as good as it gets in my career. This is as good as it gets in my friendships and my relationships. This is a, as good as it gets in my struggle against sin. We are numb and we are cynical. We don't think that God can change anything about our lives. This is where this woman was. This is where Jacob was. This is where we are. When Jesus comes to this woman, he says, there's a different way to live. Like you're living like the resurrection didn't, is, isn't going to happen. This isn't the way it's going to be. The way that he describes life is so different. Instead of commuting to this well for hot water, there'll be this flowing stream of cool spring water inside of her. What a picture of refreshment and safety, always enough, always life-giving. It's a picture of this amazing life that's never, ever, ever, ever going to leave her again. But for her, it means coming out of hiding, drawing water in community, and not having to live in isolation anymore. There would be a cost, there would be a cost for her to enter into this life, just like there is a cost for us to follow Jesus. The cost is we have to surrender the old way of living. We have to sit down the hot water, right? We have to to sit down the cynical shame out in the desert, thinking that God will never change anything for Jacob. We have to sit that way of living down. We have to abandon that way of living. It's the same thing the Lord has told Jacob over and over and over again. And it's a picture of what Jesus desires to give you, an ongoing constantly connected eternal life that starts this side of heaven. One where shame cannot exist because Jesus already knows it all. And this woman has a hard time believing it just like you and I do. And so Jesus digs a little deeper and he says, hey, look, uh, go get your husband. And she says, hey, I don't have a husband. He goes, (laughs) that's right. Because you've been married and divorced five times and you're with a guy that you're not married to. And could you imagine getting your mail read like that by Jesus? (laughs) And she just is stunned, and then she believes him, similar to how Jacob was stunned in his unbelief, and then he believed him. Will you let the Lord stun your heart this morning so that your heart will be revived and reanimated, brought back to life with the possibility of abundance, even, in we walk, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? This is the picture of life in the simple world. And what does this woman do when she leaves? She goes and tells I love it. It's, it's the wildest thing. She goes and tells everyone, like this is the first thing that comes out of her mouth, come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. That is her evangelistic tactic, right? 
I don't see that in any tracks anywhere. Come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. That's our worst nightmare. Why was it good news to her? She was found. No place to hide. Cynicism, not an option. Isolation, not an option. She was found never to be separated again. That is what the Lord Jesus wants for you this morning, church. Found to never be separated again. As we close this up, we see what happens with Joseph here. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Israel to meet his father, who's 130 in Goshen, which is in Egypt. He presented himself to him, Joseph did, and he fell on his father's neck and wept on his neck a good while. Because when God performs a miracle that you thought was impossible, you sit in it for a while, don't you? And Israel says, this is enough for me to live. I mean, this is, this is eternal. I'm entering into eternal life. I never thought this was possible. When we're living detached lives, all hopeful things seem impossible. This is why your heart gets so hard, it gets so cynical, and you just live in it. Maybe the first step toward hope, recovering the possibility of hope in your life, isn't by looking at your circumstances, by asking the Lord, to search you and know your own heart. Maybe it starts within. Maybe it starts right there. Maybe you're like a new friend of mine recently come to New City and he says, hey, I haven't even been to a church in 26 years, right? Haven't even been to a church in 26 years. I'm looking for a place to, to find and discover God. Is this a safe place? I said, man, I hope so. Amen? Another person. I haven't, I haven't been to church in 11 years. I've been detached from the people of God, detached from my Father in heaven for 11 years. This is a place where I can maybe rediscover, rekindle that relationship with God. Absolutely it is. But we've got to open our cynical hearts to the saving God of the world because he's the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob, that phrase in the Bible, I'll never see it the same way again. I can, understand, I can get down with the God of Joseph, Right? The one who's got it all together, saves his family. What a guy, right? But the God of Jacob? Oh, but you know what? Even though we want the God of Joseph, we need the God of Jacob, right? And he's the both God. He's both. He's both. Anyway, Jesus is the God of Jacob. The God that chooses me when I don't choose him. Jesus is the God of Jacob. The God that shows me unconditional love when I show unconditional deception with my life. Jesus is the God of Jacob, the God that grants grace when all I want is revenge. Jesus is the God of Jacob that fills my heart with hope when all we want to do is live as cynics. Friends, how is the God of Jacob meeting you this morning? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, it's not good for us to be detached. Like Corey Tenboom uh, uttered, years and years ago. It's, it's so not good. And our hearts surface as cynics when we become detached and we settle for that way of living. Lord, I pray that the God of Jacob would meet us today. The God of the cynic will meet us today. And Father, that you would soften our hearts to such a degree that we would be open to the possibility of hoping again open to the possibility of resurrection, Lord, open to the possibility of living hopeful lives. So, Lord, would you meet us as we, uh, as we come to this table today? Would you meet us um, as only you can?
right in the midst of our stories. We ask for that uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us to watch one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.